You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. We hope that you'll be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Mission Church is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. Now we hope you enjoy the message from our Sunday gathering. What's up, Mission Church? My name is Travis, and I'm the pastor of preaching and theology here at Mission. If you got a Bible, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible and you would like to follow along, just check out the screen below. You can follow along there. Now, today we're going to be jumping back into our teaching series through the book of Acts that we've called Empowered for Jesus' Mission. Now, why did we call this series that? It's because Jesus is not done with his church. You see, right now at this very moment, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over his church. Yet, even though Jesus is ruling from heaven, that does not mean that you and I will not experience some opposition in our lives. For example, when I first became a Christian, it was not uncommon for me to stand out on the porch on the holidays talking with a particular family member. You see, this particular family member was very antagonistic to my new faith in Jesus. He would tell me that I was weak for following Jesus, and that Jesus was nothing more than a crutch for weak and naive people. When he found out that I was going to forego a soccer scholarship to go study to be a pastor, he became even more antagonistic. He not only made fun of my faith, but he would also try to discredit my faith by sharing with me that he had 15 hours of theology in college and he found it all to be false. Now, at this point, I started to read and study, trying to learn how to share you know, information with this person, good information that would help refute some of his arguments. I started reading Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ, and as we were standing out on that porch on holidays, he began to ask me, hey, what are you reading? What are you studying? I gave him a copy of that book, and our conversation basically just stopped until 2002, my wife and I decided to move here to Las Vegas. And when we moved here, right before we were about to take off, again, I was out on that porch and this family member told me that I'm wasting my time coming here to Las Vegas because people out here don't need the Jesus that I talk about. Why would I share this with you? It's because you and I have to understand that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are going to face opposition. Now, I'm not saying that you and I should go looking for it or even try to find it. But what we should understand is that it is inevitable. We should expect it to come into our lives. And if we are honest, if you and I aren't experiencing at least some pushback, we have to ask ourselves if we are correctly living out our faith and following Jesus. How do I know this? Well, Jesus says in John 15, verse 20, this, Remember the word that I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You see, Jesus tells us very clearly there that persecution is not a might. It's not even an if, but rather persecution is a win. And we are going to see that Jesus is true to his word. Why? Persecution comes into the church. Even as the church is beginning, they find themselves being persecuted. Yet even in the midst of this persecution, we're going to discover that they are empowered to face that opposition. How? Well, look with me in Acts chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what we read. While they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them. Now, if you don't remember, because it was quite a while ago, Jesus had healed a man who was born lame. 
Each and every day, this man was taken to the temple courts, and he was sat by the gate called Beautiful, where he would beg. Now Peter and John were walking into the temple to pray. And as they walked in, they saw this man who was lame, begging and expecting a handout. With that, Peter looks at him, and he says, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. With that, this man who has never stood on two feet, this man who has never taken a step, all of a sudden stands up, starts leaping, dancing, and praising God. You see, each and every day he would sit outside the temple courts, but also each and every day hundreds, if not thousands of people would walk past him begging. Yet on this day, as they walk into the temple, what do they see? Not this man begging, but him up dancing and praising God. With that, a crowd gathers. And what does Peter do? He seizes the opportunity. He looks at the crowd and he begins to preach to them, telling them to turn from their sins and to trust in the resurrected, the risen Jesus. And many people come to trust in Jesus. And it is while they are in the act of preaching that the religious establishment shows up and interrupts them. How many of you have ever been addressing a crowd or speaking publicly only to be interrupted? A lot of people haven't because I do think the number one fear in the world is speaking in public. Yet as a preacher, I have found myself interrupted several times when I am preaching and teaching. I can tell you it is frustrating. Early in my ministry career, I went down to a rural area of Kentucky to where I preached at a youth camp. And it seemed like almost every time I hit a point in my message, this young man in the back, that any time I hit one of those points, he would jump up and do a backflip. Now, after about three or four times of him doing backflips and everybody turning and looking at him, one of the leaders could tell that I was getting frustrated and said, it's okay, keep going. He's paying attention. That's what he, do, what he does to pay attention. And I could just remember going, it was so distracting. There was time in which I was preaching at a homeless mission to a couple hundred men. And the entire time I'm up front preaching and teaching, there's a guy in the front row saying, I've got something to say. Hey, I, I've got something to say. After about 15 to 20 minutes, I looked at him and said, I've got something to say too. Can't you see and hear that I'm doing it right now? The priest, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees all show up and they interrupt Peter and John while they are preaching. But why do they interrupt them? Listen to what it says in verse 2. Because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So why was the religious establishment greatly annoyed? Well, there are two reasons. The first one is this. Peter and John did not have the right credentials. They didn't have the right education. In the words of these religious leaders, we're going to see that they are unschooled. They are untrained. They haven't been taught by a rabbi. They haven't experienced any formal training. And yet, they stand up and teach. You see, it was believed within this time that young Jewish boys, by the time they were 13 years of age, would have most of the Pentateuch memorized. That is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Most of it memorized. Those students that showed an aptitude for learning were oftentimes drafted by the rabbis to come underneath them to learn their teaching and take their teaching, which was called a yoke, upon them. Perhaps you've heard of the rabbinical school of Hillel or Gemelli. That was the one that I believe the Apostle Paul was trained under. If you think of those things, you've got the right idea. Yet those who weren't drafted oftentimes went back to their homes to where they learned their family trade. 
For example, they would learn carpentry or how to work with leather or to become fishermen. So here are Peter and John. They are teaching and preaching. They are unschooled. They're untrained. And we see that they are fishermen by trade. And whose job was it to teach the people? It was the priest and the Sadducees. And they are absolutely ticked because they don't think anybody should be listening to anyone but them. Some of you might remember in 2009, I believe it was Taylor Swift who won the award for the best female music video. And while she was up on the stage receiving her reward, giving her speech, who stood up and interrupted her? 2020 presidential candidate Kanye West. He jumped up on the stage and he said he didn't think Taylor Swift's video was the best, but rather he thought Beyonce's video was the best. And that's kind of what's going on right here. Peter and John are up teaching and preaching. And it's almost as if the religious establishment jumps up on the stage, takes the microphone and says, what are you doing listening to them? Do you not realize we are the best? We are the ones you are to be listening to. Yet they are not only frustrated with their lack of credentials, but the religious leaders are also frustrated with their message. What was Peter and John preaching? That in Jesus, there is a resurrection from the dead. You see, this really ticked off the Sadducees. This annoyed them because they did not believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And because they didn't believe in these things, they were Sadducee. Now, I know that is cheesy, but it will, you will not forget it. You see, they were so annoyed with what they were teaching because they could not stand anything that was coming out because they didn't believe in it. But the Sadducees were not only theologically liberal. To say that Jesus is the Messiah was to set up a rival king to Caesar. And if you know anything about the Sadducees, they weren't just theologically liberal, but they were also in cooperation with the Roman establishment. And because of their relationship with the Roman establishment, they were extremely wealthy and had power. One guy said they would sell their own mother to stay in power. Yet the message of these two groups is drastically different. The Sadducees were basically teaching rules. Peter and John were teaching resurrection. The Sadducees were saying, hey, if you want to be acceptable to God, then you've got to follow the right rules. Yet Peter and John were saying, if you want to be acceptable to God, it's not about what you do or don't do. It's about what Jesus has done for you. That the resurrected Jesus has done enough to make you right with God. And this message is so offensive, not only back then, but I believe this message is offensive to us now. You and I, we live in America. And some of you have heard me say this before. We are Americans, right? We can do. Yet the message of Peter and John is emphatically, you're an Americant. There, you cannot do enough to make yourself acceptable to God. That is why Jesus has come. So what do the religious leaders do? They try to silence Peter and John in their message. They lock them up. And this sounds really familiar. Check out what it says in verses 3 through 4. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day, since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Since it was night, they took Peter and John, and they locked them up. Now, does this sound familiar? It should, because this is exactly what happened to Jesus. And I can't help but to think that the religious establishment thought if they lock them up, 
then they'll silence their message, they'll shut them up, and the problem will go away. Yet what we see in the text is even though they lock up the messengers, they cannot lock up their message. How do we know this? Well, Luke is the author of the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 1, he tells us that there are about 120 people following Jesus. In Acts chapter 3, he tells us that there are about 3,000 people now following Jesus. And here we are in Acts chapter 4, and what do we see? 5,000 more people are following Jesus. Most people believe that up to this point in this book, there is anywhere from nine to 12,000 people following Jesus in a town that has a population of about 40,000. This is a significant movement. But don't miss the pattern we see in this book, especially in this text and as we go through Acts. That the apostles and Christians, what do they do? They share Jesus. Then what happens? Persecution comes. And then what happens? People believe. You see, they share Jesus, persecution comes, and people believe in Jesus. And I would argue it's not too dissimilar to today. I have a friend who spent several years in a country that was hostile and still is, I believe to this day, hostile to the message of Jesus. He was over there with a bunch of missionaries. And tragically, one day, a man walked into an area of the city where some missionaries were serving, and he killed several of those missionaries. As a result, my friend and several of his other missionary friends had to flee. Yet several years ago, I had an opportunity to sit down and have dinner with a few of them. And they shared with me that when they left and they fled, they thought, oh man, what is going to happen to the city? What's going to happen to the people? But they told me that more people came to faith after that moment than any time before. Why is that? It's because you can try to lock up. You can try to kill the messenger. But friends, you cannot lock up or kill the message. I have another friend that told me of a time in which he was sharing with a bunch of guys basically while he was, why, why he was waiting until marriage to have sexual intimacy with a woman. You see, he believed that God told him to wait for marriage and that was God's best. And as he shared this with this group of men, each and every one of them started to ridicule him. Now he shared with me what hurt wasn't so much that they ridiculed him, but rather that they ridiculed the Jesus he believed in. Yet as those men left, one guy stuck around. And he told my friend that the reason he stuck around is because he's never seen anybody stand that strong for Jesus and what, they be and what he believed in. And so he said, tell me, why is it you believe this? You see, you and I, we can try to discredit the messenger, if you will. The world can try to discredit the messenger. But you cannot discredit the message. And my sister-in-law spent some time over in China. And while she was over there, she shared Jesus with a lot of people. Well, one day she was in her apartment and this young woman came running into the apartment, screaming at the top of her lungs, I believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus, I love Jesus. A lot of the people in the room tried to get her to calm down because in that culture to say that or to follow Jesus could mean you get beaten, right? Or get ostracized from the community. But her response was amazing. She said, I don't care what they do to me. I believe in him and everyone has to know. Friends, you can try to beat the message. You can try to stop the mess or messenger. You can try to beat the messenger, but you cannot stop the message. So what happens to Peter and John? Check it out, verses five through seven. 
The next day, the rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Ananias, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them, by what power in a, or in what name have you done this? So sometime the next day, there is a trial, and don't miss this. These names are familiar. Why is that? These are the very names of the people who oversaw the trial of Jesus. Imagine how hard it must have been for Peter and John to stand before these men, about 70 of them in a semicircle, staring at them intently. It must have gone through their mind, is history going to repeat itself? Are they going to do to us what they did to Jesus? But don't misunderstand what this council is trying to do. They are not just simply asking by what power and name these actions have been performed. They know very clearly, as we see in the book of Acts, that they, these guys are followers of Jesus. Rather, what they are trying to do is to get them to say the name of Jesus publicly. And the question that you have to ask yourself, and the question I asked myself as I was studying this text, is would I be so bold to say the name of Jesus in the midst of all of this pressure? I had a friend who came into our house church several years ago in tears because she shared with us her experience of telling a person who was her only friend, she said, in college about Jesus. When she went to this school, she was brand new, and because she was an introvert, she really didn't make a whole lot of friends. But she had this one person in particular that she would consider her best friend. Well, one day this person said, hey, tell me what is it you believe about Jesus? Because she knew she went to church. And she shared with us, she was faced with a situation. Do I share who Jesus is or do I remain quiet? She decided to be faithful to Jesus and she shared the gospel with her. Her friend looked at her and said she could not believe that she, could, that she was friends with somebody who would believe in something so narrow-minded. At our house church that night, this woman wept as she experienced the rejection of her friend because of her faith in Jesus. And our house church rallied around her and prayed with her and encouraged her as she was faithful to share the gospel. There was another guy that I met and had the opportunity to talk with who came from another religion. He knew if he was going to place his faith in Jesus, it was going to come at great personal cost. He knew he was going to lose his job. He was going to lose his wife and kids. He was going to lose his community. Yet he shared following Jesus was worth it. And when he placed his faith in Jesus and got baptized, all those things he feared would happen became a reality. His job was lost. His wife and his kids left him. And the community around him shunned him. You see, Mission, you and I need to know that every time we share Jesus with others, it's not going to be easy. It's not always going to be rainbows and sunshine. You and I have to understand that rejection and persecution are going to happen. It's inevitable. Yet like these people, we need to be faithful to share. Why is that? It's because Peter and John were faithful to share. But how? How were they able to do this in the midst of such opposition? Look at verses 8 through 9. Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed? Don't miss what Luke just told us. What is Peter full of? He's full of the Holy Spirit. Think of the life change the Holy Spirit has brought into Peter's life. 
We know weeks earlier, while Jesus was on trial, Peter was standing around a charcoal fire when a young servant woman comes up to him and says, hey, weren't you with Jesus? And what does Peter say? I don't know the man. Yet here he is being asked again, except this time he's not being asked by a young servant woman, but rather he's being asked by the religious authorities, the who's who of society, and Peter does not miss a beat. He responds, what's the difference? Well, Luke, who is the author of Acts, is also the author of the Gospel of Luke, which is a biography of Jesus's life. And in the Gospel of Luke, he quotes Jesus as saying this in Luke chapter 12, whenever they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour, what must be said? What is the difference between Peter standing around a charcoal fire and the difference between Peter on trial? It's just simply this. He's full of the Holy Spirit. Over the years, people have asked me, Travis, are you a pastor of a spirit-filled church? Now, I know what they mean when they ask me that question. They're saying, hey, at your church, do you guys speak in tongues? Do you have healings? Do you believe in health and wealth prosperity? There was one time in particular, this woman asked me, Travis, do you pastor a spirit-filled church? Normally, I respond with, what do you mean by that? But this day, I was feeling a bit ornery, and I just said, absolutely, I lead a spirit-filled church. I pastor in a spirit-filled church. Why? Because when I look in the book of Acts, what do I see? That every person who is spirit-filled does what? Share Jesus with others. And the church that I pastor, we love talking about Jesus. Are you a spirit-filled person? Now, why would I respond that way? Because I was feeling a bit agitated, sure. But when I look in the book of Acts, I see that a spirit-filled person is a person who talks about Jesus. When you look in Acts chapter 2, and the Spirit comes upon the apostles, what do they do? They start preaching Jesus in the known languages of the people around them. When you look in Acts chapter 4, verse 9, this text right here, Peter is on trial. And what happens? The Spirit fills him, and we're going to see he shares Jesus with the council. At the end of Acts chapter 4, and verse 31, as persecution is coming upon the church, they pray to God, and what does it say? They are filled with the Holy Spirit to boldly share Jesus with others. And in Acts chapter 9, the apostle Paul, who is known as Saul in that text, he changes his name to Paul, that when the Holy Spirit comes upon him, he goes immediately into the synagogue and he starts to tell other people about Jesus. You see, are you speaking the gospel to others, even when it's hard? You see, almost every time in the book of Acts, friends, it is hard. You, say you, we, you see, we cannot say we are spirit-filled believers if we are not sharing our faith. You see, mission, Jesus is empowering you and me to speak boldly for him in the midst of difficulty, just like he has done for Peter. How? By the Holy Spirit. So what does Peter share? Let's look at verses 10 through 12. Let it be known to all, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you've crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. 
For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Peter is so respectful when he addresses the council. He looks at them, he calls them rulers, he calls them elders, and then he just simply says this, are we really on trial for healing a disabled man? Did you really lock us up all night long because we did good to somebody? Well, if you must know how this man was healed, I will tell you, Jesus, who you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, he is the one who did this. Now, don't miss what Peter is doing. Peter is not simply sharing facts. He's not trying to shame these leaders. Rather, he's imploring, imploring the very ones who killed Jesus to do what? To trust in Jesus. Absolutely, they are guilty, but there's grace. You see, Peter quotes from Psalm 118 verse 22. And these religious leaders would have been familiar with this verse. For at the temple, you would see, to quote Buddy the Elf, there are ginormous stones all over the place, stones that would fill this entire room. And what would oftentimes happen is the best and most precise stones were used as the cornerstone, for everything was measured and aligned with that stone to make sure the building was intact. And what is Peter saying? Just like those builders rejected the best stone, you religious leaders, you have also rejected the best stone. You have rejected the best stone in which everything else rest. And think about what Peter is saying. You rejected Jesus. You are the ones who killed Jesus. And what sin is there worse than killing Jesus? I can't think of one. I can't possibly think of one. Yet the very ones who killed Jesus can be saved. Why? There is no other name given to us under heaven by which we must be saved. You see, Jesus has not come for those who cannot, Jesus has not come for those who can help themselves. Jesus has come for those who cannot help themselves. He's come for the very worst people. He's come for the people who killed him. Those are the ones Jesus seeks. Now, I know as soon as I say that, there are some of you that are like, okay, Travis, I get that. But what bothers you about this text, especially verse 12, is how narrow and exclusive it is. Perhaps you are like that friend of that person that I was talking about earlier. But what you have to understand is that when it comes to matters of religion and moral claims, all of us are exclusive. All of us are narrow. People have told me that they believe only good people and sincere people are the ones that go to heaven. And when I hear that, I'll oftentimes ask, okay, so bad and insincere people don't go to heaven. How would you classify somebody who is bad and insincere? And what do they do? They draw a line. There are other people who say, hey, I'm not religious at all. I don't exclude people, but there's still a standard in their life that cannot be crossed. Think about it. Which one of these cross your standard? What emotions come into your mind as you picture a truck with, I don't know, maybe a President Trump flag on it? with an NAR sticker, maybe a global warming is a hoax sticker on it, would you invite that person over to your house for coffee? Maybe for you, it's not that type of picture, but maybe it's a picture of, I don't know, maybe an electric car with a President Biden sticker and a love is love and, you know, vegans are going to take over the world. I don't know what it is. Would you invite that person over for a steak or better yet, a tofu sandwich? Everyone, hear me, 
everyone is exclusive in some way. Tim Keller says that Jesus is the most inclusive exclusivity there is. You see, Jesus is the only way. But friends, He is the way for all people who trust in Him. No matter who you are or what you have done, if you repent and trust in Jesus, you can be saved. Now, I know there are a few reactions to this. There are some of you watching right now, you think this is too good to be true. But you need to hear me. Jesus has come for you. If you haven't placed your faith and trust in Jesus, do so now. He has come for you. It doesn't matter who you are or what you have done. What he did through his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection is enough to make you right with God and to make you right with God's family. Trust in Jesus. There are others of you that are a bit angry right now. You're frustrated with what you're hearing. And just like I stood out on that porch with my, my family member, contact me. Let's grab a coffee and let's sit down and discuss this. But there are others of you who are watching this right now. And you get this. You know all of this. What, what is this for you? Well, hear the word of the Lord from Psalms 34, 8. It says this, Taste and see that the Lord is good. To taste something is to experience it. And over this Christmas holiday, I was gifted a couple of gift cards to one of my favorite steakhouses here in Las Vegas called Echo and Rig. Now, since Christmas, it was just a couple weeks ago, right? Maybe even a week ago, I don't know. But since that time, I have already gone and used these gift cards. And when I go there, I get the Bavette steak. Why is that? I have seen the Bavette steak, but I've also tasted that the Bavette steak is good. You see, I've tasted and seen its goodness, and I have shared its goodness and about its goodness with other people. And when you share Jesus with somebody, all you are doing is simply telling them that you have tasted and seen that Jesus is good, and you want them to get in on it. If they reject you, that is okay. Why? Jesus said some would. Peter and John were rejected as they shared. But what did they do? They continued to faithfully share because they were given power to face opposition. Mission Church, may this be a season in which we boldly and passionately and lovingly share Jesus with the world around us, the city around us. Why? Because God has placed His Spirit inside of us to empower us to share, even in the midst of opposition. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you for your grace and your mercy that you give us through Jesus. And I thank you that, Jesus, you have not left us alone, but placed the very spirit that Romans 8 says raised you from the dead. You have given that to us to empower us to share you even in the midst of great opposition. So, Father, I just pray for those who are watching right now who don't know you. Jesus, give them the gift of faith to trust in you. Just like you did for Saul, take the scales off, the, off their eyes so that they can see you clearly. For those right now who are wrestling with this, Father, I pray that they continue to wrestle and that by your Spirit they will seek truth and they will see that, Jesus, you are in fact good and that you have come not just to, to be a, a narrow way but to be a glorious way, a 
a glorious way for people to be made right with God. And Father, I pray for all of us who are trusting in you and are filled with your Spirit, Holy Spirit, embolden us, just like you did the saints and the people in Acts, to share Jesus with others. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.